Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files, episode 35. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Bach sonatas for viola da gamba and harpsichord. Dating these works has always presented something of a problem. A Bach autograph score exists only for the G major sonata, BWV 1027, and the disparate dating of different compositions related to some of the three sonatas, including a trio sonata and a work for organ, add to the confusion. For some decades, these works were thought to have been composed fairly early in Bach's career, perhaps at the court of Curtin, where he would have encountered a noted gamba virtuoso of his day, Christian Ferdinand Abel. But in more recent years, Bach experts have become more confident that the pieces were composed later, probably in Leipzig, and some have suggested that the gamba performer who Bach had in mind may have been Abel's son, Karl Friedrich. At any rate, these sonatas have, until fairly recently, been relatively neglected by performers and listeners. They may not be quite the equal of the violin or flute sonatas, for example, but they are interesting works nonetheless. We're going to look at two of the sonatas, and we're going to begin with the sonata in D major. The overall pattern of movements here is slow, fast, slow, fast, with the first movement in 3-4 and marked adagio. Here's a simplified example of the first four-measure thematic statement of the gamba, which opens the movement. It spends a fair amount of its time sustaining or circling around the tonic note of D until the fourth measure, where it falls to A as the chord beneath it changes to dominant. Probably its most distinctive features occur on the third beat of the first measure, with its dotted eighth note leading to two ascending 32nd notes, and the first two beats of the second measure, which begins with a trilled note and concludes with an octave leap to a long sustained tone. My simplified examples, being MIDI-based as usual, will not here be using an actual viola da gamba sonority, so they will sound somewhat different and much less interesting than the actual instrument. I've included the very basic left-hand part of the harpsichord in this example to provide something of a harmonic context, but not the right hand, which engages in imitation with the gamba, the nature of which I'll explain in a minute. The gamba's second thematic statement, starting in measure 5 up a fifth, begins similarly to the first for its first two measures, adjusted for the changes in the increasingly chromatic harmony beneath it as we begin to modulate. Measures 3 and 4 are somewhat more significantly changed. Here is the gamba part with the harpsichord left hand again, its second thematic statement. The third statement resembles the first two initially, but modifies the third measure in the sequence and extends the phrase another two bars to cadence in B minor.
We've now heard three consecutive and related statements of thematic material by the Gamba, but of course to this point I've left out a very significant component, the imitation between the Gamba and the harpsichord right hand. The right hand enters first in the second bar with an imitation an octave higher of the first two bars of the Gamba statement. In the last bar of that statement, it enters again up a fifth in anticipation of the Gamba's second statement, which, as I described earlier, is a variant of the first. From that point on, it tags along after the Gamba, echoing its motives in varied form until coming together with it in thirds before the cadence on B minor. Let's hear a performance to that point. In the ten measures that remain in the movement, the entire theme never returns completely intact, but several references to its motives are made before we move to a half cadence on A major, the dominant of the original key. The next movement is a lively and likable allegro in 2-4 time. Though the gambe is likely to dominate the sonority in most performances, we're going to assume that it's the harpsichord right hand that makes the first important thematic statement. Four measures that begin with another short, long, short, short, long syncopated figure, this time taking the form of two quickly ascending sixteenth notes on the first beat, starting on the third of the tonic chord, passing to a quarter note, and followed by two more sixteenths, taking us back down to the third of the chord. The next measure repeats the same pattern down a step, and the third measure slows down the rhythmic momentum a bit with four eighth notes, which take us back to the tonic note embroidering it with a trill. The final measure is the busiest of the four, with its series of sixteenth notes skittering down the scale. It's not a complex melody, but it is an infectious one, playing out over the simplest of alternations between tonic and dominant chords. Here is just the harpsichord right hand part. Against this little tune in the right hand, the gamba starts by harmonizing with it a tenth below, and then, in the third bar, breaking briefly into a figuration pattern in sixteenth notes, which provides a more active accompaniment. And speaking of active, we mustn't forget the harpsichord left hand. The syncopated pattern in the melody which I mentioned earlier leaves a little sonic space to be filled, and the left hand fills it effectively with a swirl of thirty-second notes within the tonic triad. Let's hear the opening measures in an actual performance.
As you may have noticed, after the first four-bar statement of the theme in the harpsichord right hand, the gamba takes it on, while the right hand moves against it in 16th note patterns, some of which resemble the figuration patterns in the gamba I mentioned a minute ago, while the left hand continues on providing a baseline of short, energetic motives which add to the overall rhythmic momentum. After the gamba has finished its imitation, and you heard just a glimmer of that at the end of my example, the harpsichord left hand takes up its own variant of the first two bars of the theme, although it's a bit difficult to hear it within the busy texture, and then repeats that variant up a step. Meanwhile, the gamba has introduced a new motive, featuring a bold ascending octave leap followed by a quick lower neighbor tone figure, which leads into a 16th note flow consisting of scale fragments and descending arpeggios, all of which are accompanied by two equally busy harpsichord lines. The original theme does not return in its entirety from here to the end of the first section, but we're never far from references to it, often treated sequentially. Sometimes it's just the short-long, short-short-long syncopation that's heard. Sometimes it's an extended version of the opening motive which echoes back and forth between the parts. As we continue through the first section, we modulate to A major and introduce a new idea involving a note tied across the bar to an arpeggio figure. And just four measures before the end of the section, driving to a cadence on the dominant, we hear the first two bars of the theme with the various parts lining up just as before, but it's in A minor, not A major. It's a bit of a surprise, but certainly not a shock because we've heard Bach do things like this in the last few bars before a cadence a number of times. And as usual, he pulls us back to A major right before the cadence. Here is the rest of the first section without repeat, beginning more or less where my previous excerpt left off. The second section of the movement naturally starts in the key of the dominant and begins by featuring harpsichord alone for the first four bars in a variant of the original theme, which lapses into a flow of sixteenth notes after the first four measures. The gamba duly imitates this new version of the theme four bars later. Meanwhile, the harpsichord left hand, often lost in the sonic shuffle, begins by toying with the opening motive of the theme, soon joined by the harpsichord right hand. Meanwhile, as is often the case in the second section in a movement of this sort, we are also in the process of modulating two new keys, dropping in on B minor and A minor, among others. Eventually, the whole first theme is brought back in the original key of D major in an interesting variation that has the gamba taking the lead and the harpsichord right hand echoing its opening motives in thirds while the left hand provides a persistent counterpoint of sixteenth notes against it. Again, the minor mode is threatened, just a few measures before the end. This time it's D minor, since our ultimate goal is now the original tonic of D major. But the ship is righted at the last moment, 
and we conclude the movement with a very full-sounding D major chord featuring multiple stops in the gamba. Here is the second section without repeat. We'll move on now to the languid, Siciliano-like third movement in B minor and marked Andante. The ornate but slowly unfolding gamba melody, initially accompanied only by the harpsichord bass line and accompanying continual chords, hovers around the tonic note briefly before beginning a gradual descent to the lower octave. But, having reached its goal, it springs up quickly, only to begin a more sinuous, chromatically inflected descent down a fourth, a descent marked by a number of across-the-beat ties. But after reaching this new goal, the still-restless melody soon leaps up again, and after a series of undulating curves, begins to soar above the tonic into the upper octave. Here are the first five measures. As you heard, by measure 3, the harpsichord right hand has joined in with tonal imitation of the theme at the fifth, imitation which concludes in measure 5, having deposited us into C-sharp minor. The harpsichord alone leads us into the next section in A major, where the gamba begins by presenting a variant of the first bar of the original theme, imitated a measure later by the harpsichord, which actually carries the idea a little farther as the gamba gets sidetracked by a countermelody. With a modulation to E minor, the gamba returns its focus to the main theme, and the pattern for the movement 
becomes increasingly clear. Here is an excerpt beginning with the gamma's variant in A major following the harpsichord lead-in, then the harpsichord's more extended presentation of the theme, and continuing through the gamma's restatement of the theme in E minor over more active contrapuntal accompaniment from the harpsichord. As the movement continues, the entire theme or motives from the theme recur almost continuously, sometimes echoed immediately back and forth between gamba and harpsichord right hand. More modulations occur and some new elements are introduced, for example, extended trills in both harpsichord and gamba, but completely new motivic ideas are rare. Motives from the first two beats of the opening measure are repeatedly sequenced in the last few measures of the movement as we move to the final cadence. But we are moving on now to the final movement, an allegro in D major in 6-8 time. The basic melodic materials in play here are really quite simple. The gamba begins with an arpeggio up the tonic D major chord starting on the fifth with a passing tone connecting the top two notes of the triad. In the next measure, the top three notes of the pattern move up a step as the harmony switches to dominant. The next two measures are taken up by an undulating 16th note pattern unfolding in continuous three-note segments. The 16th note pattern is altered a bit in the next measure as the harmony moves from tonic to subdominant, the chord based on the fourth note of the scale, and then the dominant. Here are the first four bars of the gamba part. In the meantime, the right hand of the harpsichord part, starting after a single eighth rest, contributes its own idea, starting on the fifth note of the scale as well, but characterized by a quick upper neighbor tone flip, followed first by the leap of a sixth to the third of the chord, and then its own little sixteenth note motive connecting the third of the chord back to the root. This measure is then followed by its variant, and then another flow of sixteenths, which double the gamba part you just heard up a tenth. I won't isolate the harpsichord left hand here, but suffice it to say that it too begins by moving up the tonic triad, this time starting on the tonic note itself, and then moves quickly to a series of undulating sixteenths very much like the ones I've already described. Now, after the first four measures, we basically hear the gamba and right hand parts switch off, 
with the left hand restating most of its pattern down an octave. The harpsichord right hand does introduce one reasonably distinctive new idea in the fourth bar of that pattern, however, a series of descending trills beginning on weak beats, an idea later passed to the gamba, which makes the trills a little more conspicuous. We're going to hear an actual performance now, the first 19 measures ending on a cadence on the dominant. These basic materials in various combinations constitute a great deal of the movement. We change keys naturally as we proceed, and about two-thirds the way through the movement, as we move to F-sharp minor, Bach changes the texture dramatically, and the harpsichord begins to dominate, throwing arpeggio patterns and scale fragments back and forth sequentially between the hands, as the gamba shifts lower in its range to provide punctuating accents. Here's a little bit of that section. As you heard in my example, the harpsichord eventually yields back to the gamba, which reclaims its authority, first by making references to earlier motivic ideas, and then by involving itself in some rather virtuoso passages, which mix multiple 32nd notes in with the 16th note patterns to which we've become accustomed. But eventually, this relatively frenetic level of activity comes to an end, and the original thematic ideas return to round off the movement. Of the three sonatas for viola da gamba and harpsichord, this is the one that is most confidently described as having been written originally for this instrumentation. That is not true of the next one we're going to look at, the sonata in G minor. The first thing that strikes many listeners when they hear the theme presented in the opening measures of the first movement of this sonata in common time in marked vivace is the similarity to the first movement theme of Brandenburg Concerto No. 3 in G major. 
The G minor gamba sonata opens with an eighth note upbeat, whereas the Brandenburg opened with two sixteenths. But after that, the rhythmic profiles for the opening measures of both movements are identical. Each beat in the measure consists of an eighth followed by two sixteenths. Now the melodic profiles are somewhat different. The first movement of the Brandenburg starts with an eighth note on the tonic G, and the accented notes within the measure outline the notes of the tonic triad, G, D, G again, and B natural. The weak part of each beat, the second half of each beat, introduces a pair of sixteenth notes which dip down to the lower neighbor tone and then right back up again. In the gamba movement, the melody starts on the fifth of the chord, but here again, each beat of the measure is given over to one of the notes in the tonic triad, while the weak part of the beats are given over to lower neighbor tone figures, not unlike those heard in the Brandenburg. On the other hand, while the melodic shape of the first Brandenburg measure hovers around the tonic note for most of the measure, the opening theme for the gamma sonata demonstrates a strong descending motion, at least for the first bar. After that, it propels upwards in eighth notes before introducing a descending scale fragment in sixteenths. So, it is at this point, pretty early in the melodic unfolding, that you'd have to say the melodic and rhythmic similarities disappear. So now, let's get back to the Gamba Sonata in G minor on its own terms. It's the second half of measure two that seems to provide the model for measures three and four, although the component parts are reversed. The descending sixteenth note passage comes first, and the ascending triad second. And the fourth measure reproduces the third a step higher. Soon, however, we encounter a continuous flow of undulating sixteenth notes, after which a new idea enters in the seventh measure, based on across-the-beat ties and triadic leaps, one which is to take on greater significance a little later on. We then come to a cadence on the G minor tonic at the beginning of measure nine. Let's hear that much. Only the left hand is notated for the first eight bars, with the right hand filling in continuo chords. And that left hand makes a lively contribution, as you could hear, initially matching with the rhythmic figures of the melody, and then moving up to a sixteenth note pattern even before the gamba melody does. As it proceeds, it frequently draws from the ascending triadic pattern, first heard in the gamba part in measure two, and at times echoes the gamba part half a measure later. The initial thematic motives are now tossed around a bit, but the second idea, the one with the across-the-beat ties introduced in measure 7, now becomes more important, especially in the gamba and harpsichord right-hand parts, the latter often echoing the former. Here's an example as heard in the gamba part. After arriving on a cadence in D minor, we flip somewhat unexpectedly to B flat major, and this second idea 
dominates for a few measures before giving way to a new, third idea, which features a long, short, short, rhythmic figure with some sixteenths doubled up into thirty-second notes. This, too, is developed sequentially and tossed back and forth between gamba and harpsichord right hand as we move into F major. We'll hear an excerpt, beginning right before the flip into B-flat major, carried through into the modulation to F major. As you could hear at the end of my example, having temporarily exhausted ideas 2 and 3, we return to idea 1. But we're not back in G minor, we're in D minor, at least briefly. The tonality, however, is by no means stable. Diminished seventh chords move us first back to G minor and then towards C minor. Meanwhile, new trills make an appearance, first in the harpsichord and shortly thereafter in the gamba part. Measures 3 and 4 of the first theme then draw special attention in a sequential passage, and then the entire theme is reasserted, this time in C minor. The movement does not stop there, of course. Bach doggedly pursues his three main thematic ideas, sometimes in whole, sometimes in part, for quite a while before finally bringing the movement to a close. There are some interesting changes in texture before we arrive there, including a very concerto-like doubling of all three instrumental lines on the first two bars of the original theme when we come back to G minor for the final time the final ritornello, if you will. There are certainly commentators who believe that this movement might well have been derived from an earlier concerto movement. After all, we'd be more likely to encounter the typical slow-fast, slow-fast pattern of four movements in a sonata for solo instrument plus continuo than the fast, slow-fast three-movement grouping we have here. And if this movement did begin life as part of a concerto, it might have had, in that form, the advantage of changing sonorities more completely from one section to another than Bach can manage here. By the way, the highly noted musicologist and Bach expert, Philip Spitta, is often quoted for his characterization of this sonata as being of the greatest beauty and most striking originality. There is no question but that the second movement has as distinctive a personality as any slow movement from any sonata 
that we've talked about to this point. The middle movement is an adagio in 3-2 beginning in B-flat major. The texture is immediately revealed to be once again in emulation of a trio sonata, the harpsichord left hand providing the usually slow-moving bass line, and the gamba and harpsichord right hand providing flowing, melismatic lines above it, sometimes seeming to rush ahead with 8th and 16th note patterns, while at other times falling back to slower-moving sustained tones. The gamba usually takes the lead in this respect, but the harpsichord right hand also engages in florid activity, especially when the gamba provides open spaces within or between its phrases. The movement begins with a fairly austere sonority, a sustained F in the gamba, the fifth of the tonic chord, with the harpsichord left hand providing a stepwise bass line against it. But by the second beat, the harpsichord right hand has entered, filling in the rest of the triad. Right from the beginning, it's clear that the basic harmonic structure of this section will not be terribly elaborate, but Bach makes extensive use of accented non-harmonic tones, frequently introduced via ornamentation, to add interest on a micro-harmonic level. We'll hear the first four measures, where the first sustained tone of the gamba part blossoms into a much more active second measure, which shows off little spurts of rhythmic activity for the first three beats, but pauses again on the fourth for a longer note, which is tied across the bar. At that point, the gamba melody begins to take on a more definite sense of direction as it ascends up a fifth. It subsequently retreats back down the scale a bit by means of another spurt in rhythmic activity, but then ascends again, its goal this time being the upper tonic B-flat. The second phrase, of which you heard a little of the beginning, starts with another sustained note in the gamba, this time passing to a slower-moving expanse of eighth notes, moving down a secondary dominant seventh chord, which will eventually resolve to the dominant chord of F major. We sit on this secondary dominant chord for an entire two measures, during which time the harpsichord right hand makes its most active contribution so far based on relatively quick-moving rhythmic figures employing 8th, 16th, and even 32nd notes. But the gamba quickly seizes our interest once again, with another florid explosion, as the secondary dominant chord passes to the F major dominant, and the gamba floats over that dominant chord, eventually settling down within it. The final four-measure phrase starts once again on the tonic chord, with the gamba taking off on another melismatic flight, as before, pausing briefly within the phrase, only to then rush ahead more urgently. We do encounter one harmonic surprise as the first section winds down. That same secondary dominant chord we've heard before makes another appearance, and we expect it to resolve to dominant once again. But this time, it resolves to F minor, and we even hear a glimpse of B flat minor before order is restored and we cadence on a rather austere-sounding dominant lacking the third of the chord. Here is the rest of the first section, beginning in measure 5, 
or my previous excerpt concluded. The second section, somewhat longer at 18 bars, begins in F major with what is initially equivalent to an exchange of parts between gamba and harpsichord right hand. But already by the third measure, the gamba begins to break from the pattern with a soaring phrase much more active than its right hand counterpart in the first section, although it concludes on the same note. The right hand also soon breaks from the original script, and from the fifth measure of the section on, we hear a series of exchanges of thematic ideas, some based loosely on ideas heard in the first section, some original, between gamba and harpsichord right hand. In the eighth bar of the second section, coinciding with the establishment of G minor as the temporary tonal center, even the harpsichord left hand is given the chance to introduce a new idea, a slow-moving series of ascending quarter notes which is immediately echoed by the gamba and then in the next measure by the right hand. This is not a particularly ingratiating new theme. It is in fact rather austere, although as the idea is repeated and harmonized by the left-hand bass line, it takes on a bit more warmth. The final bars of the second section are the most active melodically. Cascading melodic lines are handed from gamba to the harpsichord right hand, and both lines become increasingly ornate as we head toward the final cadence back in B-flat major. Here is the second section without repeat.
The final movement in G minor, 6-8 and marked Allegro, starts out rather gig-like with a two-bar subject presented first in the harpsichord, notable for its plethora of repeated notes and multiple large leaps, neither of which is uncommon for a theme of this sort. Here is a simplified example. The gamba comes in in measure three with an imitation at the fifth, although actually down an octave and a fourth, as the harpsichord right hand continues with a flow of sixteenth notes against it. By measure five, the harpsichord left hand joins in the imitation, a couple of octaves lower than the initial presentation of the subject, against which the right hand contributes a series of sixteenth note triplets in a descending undulation high in its range, and the gamba on a lower level fills in the gaps harmonically with a line of 16th and 32nd notes, creating a nice cross rhythm with the right hand triplets. Let's hear the first six bars. Measure seven closes off the initial imitation and brings with it a reduction in texture that suggests something akin to a brief solo episode in a concerto movement. It also brings a new thematic idea, unfolding initially in groups of three eighth notes, a grace note embellishing the third, which drops a sixth and then moves up by step. The gamba starts off, but the harpsichord right hand answers immediately. Then the right hand extends the idea, and the gamba responds to that extension. Meanwhile, the harpsichord left hand, against this relatively slow-moving new melodic idea, is busier than ever, spinning out a pattern of 16th notes which pulls us away from G minor and toward B-flat major. But before the move to B-flat major is confirmed with an emphatic cadence in the new key, the original subject re-enters in the gamba, as the texture once again begins to thicken. It's answered immediately in the right hand, as the cadence in B-flat finally arrives, and we find ourselves in the middle of another exposition, with the left hand entering with the subject two bars after the right hand, and the sixteenth note and triplet passages following along as before. Let's hear that much from the start of the so-called solo episode to through to the end of the second exposition. What follows is actually a little surprising. Although we might well expect another solo episode at this point, we probably wouldn't normally expect such a significant change in mood associated with that episode. A new theme four bars long still in B-flat major, marked cantabile in the score, is presented in the gamba over 16th note arpeggio figures in the right hand and a repeated tonic pedal in the left hand. First of all, we wouldn't generally anticipate the cantabile designation for a section which follows a fugal exposition, limited though that exposition may have been. And then there's the theme itself, a relatively delicate one, featuring both grace notes and trills, 
which begins with two upbeat descending eighth notes, leading to a sustained note in the first half of the measure. The second half of the measure then provides an embellished version of the earlier upbeat figure, again passing to a sustained note. A variation of the same idea is heard in the next two bars, with a sustained note dropping by step each time. Meanwhile, the repeated tonic pedal in the left hand is heard first under tonic and subdominant chords in the right hand, but as we proceed into the third and fourth measure of the pattern, it creates gentle dissonances with the chords above it. The total effect is actually rather gallant sounding and presents a dramatic contrast with what we've heard to this point. This very new idea is then passed to the harpsichord right hand as the pedal beneath it shifts to F and the gamba takes over arpeggio duties. The idea breaks off after four bars and shifts to a four-measure, sequentially-based transition passage. Let's hear the entire gallant-sounding cantabile passage. We might well expect that the transition passage I mentioned earlier would take us back to the original subject, presented in another pseudo-Ritornello section, but it doesn't. It does deliver us to D minor, and there is a glimmer of the opening subject presented in the harpsichord left hand, but it disappears quickly. Speaking of glimmers, we also hear a glimmer of the first episode theme in the harpsichord right hand and gamba repeated sequentially but it disappears almost as quickly. It's replaced by a new episodic passage characterized by a flow of gamba sixteenth notes grouped in threes and repeated sequentially against a harpsichord right-hand line later transferred to the gamba that is somewhat reminiscent of the second episode gallant theme. This is extended again sequentially until we reach F major, at which point the original subject finally turns up in the harpsichord right hand, initially somewhat buried beneath a descending gamba line, and is imitated up a fifth by the gamba two measures later. The left hand never joins in, but as we move to G minor, the right hand repeats its statement of the subject in the new key. But the continuation of that original subject, including those cascading triplets, doesn't show up this time, and instead, the repeated eighth notes of the first subject are pounced on by both the gamba and harpsichord right hand as the left hand spins out sixteenth note passages against them. A quick series of ascending trill-based phrases are then passed back and forth between harpsichord and gamba, the end result of which is a modulation to D minor and a return of the earlier cantabile gallant theme now sounding rather different in D minor. Here's an excerpt beginning with a somewhat hidden return of the original theme in F major and its imitation, and extending to the return of the gallant theme, now transformed in D minor.
At the end of my excerpt, you probably notice the original subject coming back again in the gamba, later imitated by harpsichord right hand and even left hand. And this time, the continuation was present, including the descending cascade of triplets. This could almost be the final presentation of the subject, the final ritornello, as it were, except that it's in C minor, not G minor. But that situation is soon remedied, because a variant of the first episode follows, and it serves to bring about a modulation back to the original tonic of G minor. There, the subject is heard for the last time, but it is never fully imitated, and from that point to the conclusion of the movement, we hear a conglomeration of some older motives and some new ones as we head to the final cadence. Here is the conclusion of the movement from the first return of the original theme in C minor, the modulation back to G minor, employing the first episode as its vehicle, the final presentation of the subject, and the drive to the final cadence. It's a very interesting work with some immediately attractive themes that are spun out and developed cleverly, and as we've seen before, very effectively appropriates aspects of both the typical trio sonata and the concerto movement. It also presents us with some stylistic extremes, from the fairly austere passages in the slow movement to the surprisingly galant-sounding melodies in the finale. We're not going to get to the G major sonata for viola da gamba and harpsichord, BWV 1027, but it's a very interesting one that exists also in a trio sonata version for two flutes and continuo, and we may revisit it in that form in a later episode. But for our next episode, we're going to take a look at a sampling of works from Bach's two- and three-part inventions. (laughs) ¶¶ 